Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 66 of the Hydrogen Nowcast for December 9th, 2022. The Hydrogen Nowcast is sponsored by New Day Hydrogen, who's helping fleet owners meet their zero-emission vehicle needs. If you're with a fleet or transit operator, and your fleet is wondering how to convert to zero-emission vehicles, but still meet your operational needs, New Day Hydrogen can give you the option of fuel cell vehicles by providing public hydrogen fuel stations near you and showing you the available fuel cell trucks, vans, and buses. To find out more information about both vehicles and fueling, visit the NewDayHydrogen.com website, where you can also submit requests on the contact page. On the podcast today, I want to talk about what I see as a glaring issue confronting the energy transition that seems to be overlooked by everyone. And it's about the energy demand side, not the supply side. You know, everyone is focused on energy supply, building wind and solar arrays and multiple ways of generating hydrogen, but little thought has been given to how customers can use those different forms of energy and then in turn enlisting those customers. So the question is often asked, how can we accelerate the energy transition? Well, the answer is to support and promote the uses of renewable energy. So here's the issue. In many cases, new infrastructure is needed to switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy. So we're asking users not only to switch to a different fuel, but asking them to invest in infrastructure in order to use renewable energy. Additionally, because this infrastructure is new, it's more expensive than the infrastructure that's been developed, optimized, and competed over decades. And this cost difference has always been the case with new technologies. For example, the first computers, cell phones, high-def TVs, etc., were far more expensive than they are today. So support is going to be needed to help introduce the new energy infrastructure, and this issue needs to be addressed. So I think the reason the focus on demand is largely overlooked is because this is so foreign to the markets that we're used to. And by a market, I mean both the supply and the demand. Now, for most markets today, we're used to thinking of simply creating a supply because somewhere a demand can exist. And this is true for almost any product or service. If you supply it and what you offer has the same or better performance, convenience, and cost, somebody can buy it and use it. But this is definitely not the case for our energy systems. And a really good example of this is hydrogen. You know, plenty of companies stand at the ready to supply hydrogen, but there's little or no demand because the infrastructure isn't there to use it. Now, through the Colorado Hydrogen Network, I frequently receive messages from people who want to supply hydrogen, and they're asking where they can find customers. Another example is the U.S. Department of Energy is also mostly focused on the production of hydrogen. But we have yet to see any programs to really stimulate demand. For example, it could be a requirement that all natural gas supplies have a few percent of hydrogen added. This would generate a demand. Also, we should be requiring that all public vehicles like postal trucks, road maintenance, snow plows, and transit systems deploy some small percentage of fuel cell vehicles. This would also produce a market for hydrogen that commercial enterprise would fill immediately. So if we're going to start with thinking about the uses or the demand side of renewable energy, it's not enough simply to think of replacing one form of energy with another. We need to go back a step and think about what the function is of the fossil energy and how to replace that function with renewable energy. Thinking about the function to be performed can lead to different and better answers. For one thing, do we replace molecules with molecules? 
or molecules with electrons, or even electrons with molecules. Now, the energy transition is defined as converting to forms of energy that are renewable and emit no greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Now, it's human nature to simply think of replacing the source of fossil energy with something else, for example, one molecule with another, or replace molecules with electrons. But I think that's short-sighted and can lead to poor solutions. We need to take a systems engineering approach and broaden our thinking and ask the right question. And the question we need to ask is how do we replace the functions that that fossil fuel provides? And should the solutions be electrons or molecules? Now, one of my favorite quotes is from Emile Chartier, who said, nothing is more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one you have. You know, another way to say this is when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. So we have to resist jumping to conclusions about the solution until we really understand which functions we're trying to replace. So let me give you an example involving motor vehicles. What functions does petroleum provide for motor vehicles? Well, the obvious function is that petroleum provides energy to move the vehicle, but it's actually much more than that. The petroleum allows the vehicle to be driven as long and as far as you like with quick refueling. It allows the vehicle to be driven at any temperature with negligible impact on range. It also allows the vehicle to pull trailers without limiting range, and it allows the vehicle to carry heavy loads without any impact on cargo capacity or limiting the range. Now, all of these functions fall into the category of performance and convenience. And users are going to demand the same performance and convenience as petroleum, or they'll never have any motivation to change to something else. Replacing a vehicle's internal combustion engine with an electric motor and a battery is a solution that works in limited cases, but it's not a general solution that works for all users and all use cases. So how does this relate to the subject of the podcast, which is to focus on the demand side? Well, three things. First, we have to carefully examine the use of the fossil fuel to make sure we understand all the functions it's provided. Next, we have to find a renewable energy replacement that meets or exceeds all those functions. In other words, it has to have the same or better performance and convenience. And lastly, how do we introduce our replacement into the market? How does the infrastructure need to change? And how do we encourage and promote that infrastructure? Until we support new infrastructure, the energy transition will remain stalled. Now, although we're all intimately familiar with fossil fuels, let's take a minute to review the functions they provide so we can Next, ask ourselves how to replace those convenient functions with renewable energy in the main energy sectors. Now, the most useful feature of fossil fuels, well, besides their low cost, is that they embody a huge amount of energy in a form that's easily stored, transported, and quickly transferred. Now, we take it for granted when we fill our tank of our vehicle in just a few minutes that we've just easily and quickly transferred an enormous amount of energy or when we ship millions of gallons of oil across the ocean or through pipelines. So the ability to store, transport, and quickly transfer large amounts of energy are the functions we need to replace. Next, let's walk through the major uses of fossil fuels, asking the question for each one of what function the fossil fuel is providing. Then let's list the possible renewable energy replacements, considering whether that form of energy gives the same or better cost, performance, and convenience as the fossil fuel that it replaces. Now, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, the five major sectors producing greenhouse gas in the U.S. are transportation at 27%, electric power at 25%, 
industrial processes at 24%, and commercial and residential heating at 13%. Now, the fifth source of greenhouse gas is agriculture. Now, although about 11% of greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture, not all of that is from fossil fuels. Still, natural gas is used today to produce ammonia, which is used as a fertilizer. But there's a multitude of other issues with using ammonia as a fertilizer besides the use of natural gas, which leads to the CO2 that needs to be captured and sequestered, plus the fugitive methane leaks that occur in the handling of natural gas. Now, first, nitrogen fertilizers kill the soil biology, such as the microbes and nematodes and mycorrhizal fungi, which give us the service of sequestering carbon in the soil. Also, Excess nitrogen produced by ammonia fertilizer leaches its way into the water system, causing algal blooms and polluting the water. So the function of petroleum in this case, to produce fertilizer, may actually be better served by replacing nitrogen fertilizer with organic fertilizers, such as animal manure. Organic fertilizers have the added benefit of adding microbial life to the soil, and thus restoring the symbiotic relationship between the above ground and the below ground life. Now, agricultural practices have been undergoing a revolution to stop tilling the soil and to change to organic fertilizer, both of which will not only reduce emissions, but hugely increase carbon sequestration in the soil. So let's move on to consider how best to replace the more direct uses of fossil fuels for transportation, industrial processes, the electric grid, and building heating. Now, I consider building heating to be the most difficult sector to convert to renewable energy. Now, sure, there are plenty of technical solutions like heat pumps, but the difficulty is in the economics of how to replace this huge installed base of furnaces. In other words, who pays for it? And how do we motivate people to make those major modifications to their homes and businesses? Furnaces typically last 30, 40, 50 years, and so we can't wait for them to break down. So let me first take a minute to describe what a heat pump is. Well, your home air conditioner and your refrigerator are both heat pumps. Now, according to the second law of thermodynamics, heat only moves from a hot area to a cold area. Think about a hot cup of tea in a cool room. The heat from the tea is eventually lost to the room. Now, a heat pump is a way to move heat in the opposite direction, from a cooler area to the warmer area. Now, your refrigerator or your home air conditioner take unwanted heat from the cool interior and move it to a warmer area outside the home or outside the refrigerator. Now, the way a heat pump does this is by taking advantage of the fact that most gases heat up when they're compressed and they cool when they're expanded. So by compressing a gas and making it hot, you can dump that heat to a warm area. And then by expanding that same gas in the cooler area, making it much cooler than the surrounding, you can absorb heat and warm it up. So what if we wanted to use our home air conditioner to heat the house instead of cooling it? Could we just reverse the air conditioner, taking heat from the cold outdoors and moving it to the warm indoors? Well, indeed we can, and this is how a heat pump works. However, in the summer, we're only talking about an indoor-outdoor temperature difference of less than probably 30 degrees Fahrenheit or 17 degrees Celsius. However, in the winter, that difference could be three times that, making the job more difficult for the heat pump. But it actually can be even worse than that if the home or the building uses hot water to heat the interior, since the circulating water is typically much hotter than the air that's used for a force air system. 
So the heat pump has to generate an even greater temperature difference. So creating a heat pump that can warm a home on a sub-zero day has been a challenge, but now there are heat pumps on the market that can do this. So heat pumps are viable solutions for new building construction, but what about the billions of existing homes and buildings? Technically, we could replace all gas and oil furnaces with heat pumps, but there's a big problem. Converting a home furnace to a heat pump easily costs tens of thousands of dollars or euros. So who's going to pay for that? You know, certainly not the homeowner in most cases. Now, even if society pays for the heat pump, the modifications to the home can be substantial, which some people may object to. So it seems clear to me, at least, that converting homes and businesses around the world from gas or oil furnaces to electric heat pumps is impractical and cost prohibitive. So it seems like the only practical solution is to keep existing home or building furnaces, but convert to burn a zero carbon or at least a carbon neutral fuel. So what are our fuel choices? Well, there's really only three, either hydrogen or some hydrogen carrier like ammonia or a biological oil, which could be derived from organic sources like algae or agricultural waste. Now, there are issues with all of these, which I'll talk about in a minute, and all of these will produce some amount of greenhouse gas. I mean, even pure hydrogen, because when air is used to burn the hydrogen, the nitrogen from the air produces some nitrous oxide. Now, another issue, of course, to using hydrogen for building heating is how to deliver it to the home or the building. Now, the use of natural gas pipelines is problematic for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is leakage. You know, hydrogen is a very tiny molecule, which needs special fittings to prevent leaks. And additionally, hydrogen molecules can combine with the metal molecules, which can cause the metal to become brittle and fracture over time. So what about ammonia? Well, ammonia can burn, and blends of hydrogen and ammonia can provide the same combustion characteristics of various fuels, like natural gas, for example. But ammonia, in combination with moisture, can corrode zinc, copper, and brass. And unfortunately, most heating systems use brass fittings or copper tubing. Now, ammonia also, as we all know, is pretty strong irritant, and it can even cause tissue damage at pretty high concentrations. So I would say that ammonia is probably not a practical substitute for natural gas in buildings. So what can we do? Is there no solution for low-carbon building heating? Well, it may turn out that the best we can do is actually carbon neutral. Now, one really great way to do this is to use algae to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And then the algae can be used to create a bio-oil, which can be processed into natural gas for building heating or even oil for building heating. Now, if we wanted to sequester a bit of carbon in that process, we could use some of the revenue from the sale of this renewable natural gas plus other byproducts from algae, like animal feed, to sequester some of that oil that the algae produce. And this sequestration could take the form of simply putting that bio-oil down into old oil wells. Now, if you haven't heard the Hydrogen Nowcast episode 51 regarding biological carbon capture using algae, give episode 51 a listen and you'll learn more about the use of algae. All right, so we've talked about agriculture and building heating. And replacing fossil fuels and fertilizer may involve more of a lateral solution, which would be to fertilize differently. But the solution for building heating may still involve molecules, but from a non-fossil fuel source, but preserving the existing heating infrastructure. All right, so let's move on to talking about electric power generation. 
Now, traditionally, electric power has been centrally generated and then transmitted to the users. But future renewable energy can be generated in smaller amounts in many places, sometimes even at the point of use. For example, solar panels on homes. And this is known as distributed generation. So our first functional shift is that power distribution utilities may need to change from energy suppliers to energy brokers. And by that, I mean acting as a clearinghouse for energy flowing many directions from distributed generators to distributed users. But let's keep going. Should our electric grid rely on just electrons or should molecules be employed as well? For example, should energy transmission happen only over wires or should underground hydrogen pipelines be used? Now, although there is an energy loss to convert from electricity to hydrogen in an electrolyzer, and then another loss to convert hydrogen back to electricity in a fuel cell, several studies indicate that the cost of conversion is actually less than the cost difference between electrical transmission lines and underground pipelines after a certain distance. Also, the public frequently fights the building of new transmission lines on aesthetic grounds. But underground pipelines wouldn't have that problem because they're out of sight. Plus, underground pipelines can be less susceptible to acts of sabotage or forces of nature. Also, miles of pipeline can be thought of as storage tanks. By using a small variation in pressure, pipelines can store hydrogen. All right, so now what about transitioning electrical generation from fossil fuel to renewable energy? Well, the first obvious choice is wind or solar arrays. But of course, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, especially at night. So energy storage is needed. But this is another example of the danger of having only one idea. Now, in many places of the world, dry rock geothermal energy is within practical reach of the surface. Now, geothermal energy has the advantage, of course, that it operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So energy storage isn't needed. Another advantage is that small geothermally powered generating plants can be deployed almost anywhere, which means far fewer long-distance transmission lines are needed. For example, to power a fueling plaza along a remote highway or in small towns. Now, that vast amount of energy needed to generate hydrogen for fuel cell EVs or to charge battery vehicles can be generated on-site without building new transmission lines. Now, you can view a map of geothermal resources by performing a web search for NREL Geothermal Map or Geothermal Map Europe. Now, I covered geothermal energy on the Hydrogen Nowcast, episode 64. So if you haven't heard that episode, I think you'll find it fascinating. Now, in places where geothermal is too deep to be practical, wind or solar may be the most likely sources. And in this case, energy storage will probably be needed. Now, although electricity can be converted to hydrogen, stored and then converted back to electricity in a fuel cell, only 70% of the energy is conserved in both conversions. And 70% times 70% is 49%. So about half the energy is lost. Now, a possible better solution for utility-scale energy storage may be batteries, but not lithium-ion, which are far too expensive. Iron-air batteries are just becoming available, and they have a round-trip efficiency of around 60%. Okay, so let's turn to industrial processes. Well, steelmaking releases CO2 in two ways. First, some hydrocarbon fuel is usually burned to produce heat. 
Now, a non-hydrocarbon fuel like hydrogen or hydrogen ammonia blends can be burned for heat instead. Now, secondly, carbon is also used to remove the oxygen from the iron oxide in the iron ore by forming CO2, which is mostly released to the atmosphere. Now, fortunately, hydrogen can be used instead of carbon to combine with the oxygen in the iron oxide to leave pure iron. Now, because of the quantity of heat needed as well as the required chemical reaction, which I just mentioned, steel making can be served by hydrogen, but not by electricity. Now, support may be needed for the steel industry to defray the infrastructure cost of converting from carbon to hydrogen. Now, in cement making, the current Portland cement making process emits CO2 in two ways. First, a fuel is burned in the heating process, thus emitting CO2. Now, second, there is a chemical reaction when limestone, which is basically calcium carbonate, is burned to remove its carbon to produce calcium oxide and CO2. So this last source of CO2 is not removed, even if a zero-carbon fuel is used to create the heat. But there is another type of cement called pozzolanic cement. Now, pozzolanic cement is a type that was used by the Greeks and Romans, and it's actually more durable than our Portland cement. However, pozzolanic cement was replaced by Portland cement almost 200 years ago because Portland cement sets faster in a day than pozzolanic cement does. But pozzolanic cement has now been re-engineered to make it react faster, matching the one-day performance of Portland cement. And it turns out that pozzolanic cement is actually stronger than Portland cement after 28 days and continues to gain long-term strength. So the use of pozzolanic cement would reduce carbon emissions by 99% over Portland cement, thus lowering the embodied carbon in the final concrete dramatically. So the cement industry is probably going to need support to convert infrastructure from Portland cement-based products to pozzolanic cement. Now for other industrial processes like glass making or boiling, cooking, curing, firing, and drying, simple heat is needed. Now here, the vast quantity of heat required probably makes the use of electrons for resistive heat or heat pumps impractical. So turning to a molecular solution, of course, one option is to burn hydrogen. But again, that raises this difficulty of moving hydrogen from the source to the point of use. So ammonia may turn out to be a better option since it's more energy dense than hydrogen and far easier to store and transport. Now, some of the ammonia can be cracked, as we say, back to hydrogen and nitrogen, and the nitrogen is just vented to the atmosphere, but the hydrogen is blended with ammonia to be burned. Now, again, industries are going to need support to convert their burners and their energy storage infrastructure to an ammonia-hydrogen blend. So lastly, let's turn to transportation. So where does transportation need help to nurture the demand in order to develop the market? It's on the vehicle side for medium and heavy-duty vehicles. Currently, fleet users are reluctant to acquire zero-emission vehicles, I mean, either battery or hydrogen-powered, because the vehicles are more expensive than their gasoline or diesel equivalents. Now, vehicle cost, at least for fuel cell vehicles, will eventually drop to the same or lower cost as gasoline or diesel. But that's only after the economies of scale in the production process are achieved. But production volumes can't increase until users purchase a significant number of vehicles. But users are reluctant to purchase a vehicle until the price drops. So we're caught in a stalemate. Now, assistance in the form of incentives or tax breaks 
or grants or subsidies are needed to underwrite the cost of the vehicles until prices can drop. Now, this is what happened in the solar industry with rebates to homeowners who installed solar panels, thus igniting this industry. Well, that concludes this podcast about developing the demand for renewable energy. I hope it gave you a new perspective on the energy transition and why focus on demand and users is so critical. So listeners, if you enjoyed listening to the Hydrogen Nowcast, please consider subscribing to the podcast. And also, please give us a rating in your podcast app. A good rating helps us be discovered by other people. And of course, word-of-mouth recommendations are really important. So consider letting people in your own network know about the Hydrogen Nowcast. Once again, I'd like to thank New Day Hydrogen for sponsoring the Hydrogen Nowcast. New Day Hydrogen is working to build out and deploy hydrogen infrastructure to enable any of us to convert to zero-emission vehicles. And lastly, if you'd like to contact me, I'd love to hear from you. And you can reach me through the website at colorado-hydrogen.org or on LinkedIn. So until next time, this is Brian DeBruin wishing you health and prosperity. Goodbye.